We are in the book of Revelation together. Hasn't it been fun in the book of Revelation and profound and challenging and good? I've really been enjoying it. I hope you have as well. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 11 this morning, so we can open up there. Revelation chapter 11. We do want to remember our brothers and sisters at our Ventura campus who we love so much. Let's applaud them. Joining us for the sermon, and the title of this sermon is God's Purposes Prevail and His People Are Vindicated. Clearly, some good news in this chapter today. God's Purposes Prevail and His People Are Vindicated. Revelation chapter 11, it has been our habit to read the whole chapter, but today we will not do so. We will complete the whole chapter, but for the first part of the sermon, we will just read the first 13 verses. Of Revelation chapter 11. So John is still in the midst of this vision that he's been receiving from God. And now we see this in verse 1, Revelation chapter 11. He says, And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God will come into them. Came into them, excuse me. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon all those beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We'll stop right there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And... uh, Lord, as we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, your word can be heavy and radical, and these are gnarly things, and we ask that you would give us understanding and encouragement. Surely, Lord, though 
There's tough stuff included here. These are good things. This is ultimately your plan coming to fruition. And we see in it the conflict, the, the colliding of good and evil, of truth and untruth, of the power and the witness of Christ and the work and the schemes of the Antichrist. And it's messy, Lord, as is our world now, as are our lives so often. And so we pray that you would help us with the help of the Holy Spirit to connect our lives to this text, not only what it says about the future, but what it says about right now and the way that we live and ought to live and the hope that we have in Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. So please, Lord, give us ears to hear, tune us in, wake us up where we need to be awake, tune us in to your wonderful word, and please help me, please anoint me, please be present with me, that I might teach and preach in a way that gives you great glory and is helpful to these brothers and sisters whom I deeply love. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have before us in chapter 11 what has generally been acknowledged as one of the most perplexing sections in all the book of Revelation, and that's saying something, right? Because the book of the Revelation has some doozy chapters in it, and it's got some interesting moments and some perplexing pericopes in it. And this is one of the most perplexing chapters in the whole book of Revelation. And we see in it this tapestry of bewildering interweaving of Old Testament symbols and history. The temple and the altar are there. Moses and Elijah are referenced there. The wild olive trees and the lampstands that Zechariah saw in his visions are referenced there. The plagues that came upon Pharaoh are alluded to there. The beast predicted by Daniel the prophet comes on the scene here. Sodom and Egypt are referenced as symbols for Jerusalem in rebellion to God here. So all this Old Testament history and symbolism coming together, being interwoven in this tapestry that is enigmatic to say the least, to say the least. It's, it's, well, you look at it and you say, what does this mean? What are we to make of these things? Well, let's remember We know that the book of Revelation speaks, first of all, about real things. These are not fake things. These are not never-to-be things. These are real things, real people, real places, real events, having to do, I believe, though not all would agree, with the future. And that when the book of Revelation is talking about real things, it often uses symbols and symbolism to speak about these things. Often, but not always. Sometimes we see a mixing of symbols and literal references, right? In Revelation chapter five, we see Jesus there in heaven and it's, it's literal, it's Jesus. But symbols are employed to speak about it. His work and his ministry and his person. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also called the Lamb that was slain from before the foundations of the world. So we have this intermixing of symbols and literalism. And it's it's not make-believe things. Jesus is really there in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. But there's some symbols used to speak of him. We see this also in the scroll. Remember, the Father is holding the scroll in his hand. And Jesus takes the scroll and he breaks the seals. The scroll is just 
symbolic thing, but real stuff comes from it, right? Judgments come and God's wrath and God's justice in the world. And so but the book of Revelation uses this sort of methodology to speak about real things, real places, real people, real events, truly having to do with the future, at least part of it. What can be difficult as we endeavor to interpret the book is what is symbolism and what is literal? What is just, yeah, that's what it is and what is alluding to something else? And that can be challenging to determine. And so we have together endeavored to take a humble tack in that, right? Trying not to be dogmatic. There are faithful brothers and sisters who study the book of Revelation diligently and have different approaches. Not only sort of a... um, interpretive grid work, that is to say whether it has to do with the past or the present or the future, but also to what degree is it literal and symbolic. So we've taken a humble tack and we realize that there's room for both of those things. We've got to think about that in this part of the vision because this part of the vision is profound. John sees here two witnesses who are witnessing of the gospel of God and the judgment of God. They're prophesying. In the city of Jerusalem, mystically it says called Egypt and Sodom here because at this time it's in rebellion ultimately to God. And these two witnesses have supernatural powers for protection from God. Fire comes from their mouth when somebody tries to stop the witnessing, tries to stop the prophesying. And these two witnesses have supernatural power given to them. They can stop the rain from falling on the earth. They can turn water to blood. They can call forth plagues on the earth for demonstration of their authorizing from God. We have the picture of this beast that arises out of the abyss. We've spoken of the abyss before in previous chapters where demons came forth, this reference to hell or where these evil things are. And here comes this beast pictured from it. And we see that the world rejoices when the beast makes war with the witnesses and overcomes them and slays them. And they lay in the street for three and a half days. And the world watches and sees their bodies and it refused to bury them, which in, that, in ancient cultures was the ultimate form of degradation and of shame. We see here a perversion of Christmas. When these prophets of God are slain in the streets, people in the world send gifts to one another to celebrate that the voice of God has been silenced in the world. But then there's the breath of God and a resurrection and then a catching up into heaven and then a judgment from God in the earthquake in which many perish and through which others repent, it would appear, and give glory to God. Wow, this is a big vision. This is crazy stuff. And it starts with a temple, verses one and two. And there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is on the outside of the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months. Later on, it's references 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. 
You remember that we sometimes think of the tribulation period as being a seven-year period. We get that from the book of Daniel. We get that from here in Revelation and elsewhere, a seven-year period. So it would appear that possibly this is in the middle of that seven-year period because half of seven years is three and a half years, 1,260 days. You smart mathematicians, some of you are saying, wait a minute. 365 times three and a half, that's not 1,260. You must remember that a biblical year, a prophetic year, a year used in the Bible to speak of prophecies is only 360 days, 1,260 days. So we find ourselves somewhere in the middle of this period and a demarcation made of that year. And this temple comes into picture. And John is told to measure it. And we see throughout scripture that when God is asking his people to measure something, it means that he's putting his eye upon it. He's putting his attention upon it. We have in the book of Zechariah where God is prophesying about the restoration of Israel and the restoration of Jerusalem. God says, go and measure Jerusalem. Right When you're thinking about doing a rebuilding project, you start by measuring and seeing what you have. When you're thinking about restoring something, you take measurements. When God is putting his attention on something, there's a measuring of it. There's a taking of stock. There's a drawing of attention to it. So the question is, what is this temple? Well, it can't be the temple that stood in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. For John is receiving this vision toward the end of the first century, and that temple was destroyed by the Roman emperor Titus Vespasian and his forces in 70 AD. So that temple has already been destroyed. It's no longer standing when John is receiving these visions. So it's not that temple from the first century where Jesus ministered, so on and so forth. It is perhaps a new temple in Jerusalem that is standing in the last days, particularly during the tribulation period. That might be what John is seeing here. Another temple, a tribulation temple, constructed during this time. Now, there very well may be a temple in Jerusalem before the return of the Lord. And if you, to any measure, keep up with the political realities in the Middle East and what's going on, you know that that would be quite a feat to build a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem with the struggle that happens there between, really, Judaism and Islam and who claims sovereignty over the mountain. Very well may be, with all the intrigue that's implied there, that there is a temple standing in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. There are several reasons to believe this. First of all, Daniel, in speaking about these times, says that the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, will put an end to the religious activity happening in the temple. We know that the Antichrist is a future figure. He's going to come and put a stop to the religious activity happening in the Jewish temple. So there should be a temple standing during that time. Jesus seems to corroborate this in Matthew 24. He warns that when the Antichrist comes, he will stand in the holy place, the Kodesh Adashim in Hebrew, the holy place, the inner portion of the temple. Right where historically in the first and second temple, God's presence was. And that there will be great tribulation and much of it will have to do with that temple before Christ returns. And then we see this from the writings of Paul in 2 Thessalonians. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
right? The end, things that we're going to get to in the book of Revelation. And how we, his people, will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. The day of the Lord is Bible way of talking about these end time events where God's justice and judgment comes and it's culminated in Christ's return to earth. Okay, the day of the Lord. There were some apparently in the church of Thessalonica that were saying, hey, it already happened. We're already in the tribulation period. The day of the Lord is upon us. Paul says, no, 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 don't don't get tripped out by that. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have a spiritual vision of revelation or a letter supposedly from us, there were some forgeries in the first century. Don't be fooled by what they say. Here's some clarity. For that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God right? The world will move increasingly away from the worship of God in Christ. And the man of lawlessness, a reference to the Antichrist, is revealed. Okay? So the day of the Lord, the tribulation doesn't really happen until this Antichrist is revealed. The Lord Jesus Christ will not return until Antichrist is dealt with. The man of lawlessness, the one who brings destruction. And here's the part about the temple. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship, right? We speculate from that that he may be a a humanist, right? And he comes against forms of religion. He's a secularist, but then there's his turn. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming himself to be God. So he comes against all forms of worship and religion and all these displays. And then all of a sudden he comes into the temple of God into the holy place, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, and says, well, actually I am God. So for him to do that in the day of the Lord, the end, there must be a temple standing in Jerusalem. So, John's looking at this temple and he's measuring it because God is putting his attention on it. It can't be the temple from the time of Jesus that was destroyed in 70 AD. It very well may be a temple that is constructed around or during the tribulation period, that which the Antichrist will try to claim as his own. That is a possible interpretation. But perhaps this is symbolic language that pictures the temple not as a building, but is God's people, namely the church. And this is a normal New Testament way of using the idea of temple. So that's not too difficult to think about. Paul said in Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple? Speaking to the church, right? Because God is with us. And the whole point of the temple is that God can be with his people. The whole point of salvation is that we could be with God, Christ in us, us in Christ now and ultimately. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Speaking to God's people, the church. He says explicitly, we are the temple of the living God. He says that the Old Testament temple was just a prefigure, just a foreshadow, just a type of the greater reality of the union that we have with God in Christ. He says again, In 1 Peter, believers are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Reference to the temple there. And then again, Paul in Ephesians, the whole church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So it may be that there's a temple standing during the tribulation period, and that's what's in view here. It may be that this is symbolic language to say what is in view here is God's people. 
Measurements are happening. God is turning his attention to whichever one it is, God's people or this actual temple. You say, well, which one is it, Bridges? Spare us the suspense. Just tell us. I don't know. But these two options kind of represent two ways that we might view the whole content of this chapter. There are other ways, but we will conveniently ignore them. Two ways to view the content in this chapter. Number one, a more literal perspective of the future events during the tribulation period. And number two, a more symbolic perspective of the future events during the tribulation period. And both of them have merit as we look at all of the elements of this chapter. For example, if we're to take a more literal perspective, as I said, there's an actual new temple standing in Jerusalem then. And then those who are inside, who are being measured, right, who are worshiping, are representatives of Israel. Measure them. God is once again turning his attention to Israel. We surely get that from the Old Testament, that God is not done with Israel. There is a future restoration of Israel that will happen. And it seems that God is turning his attention to that. These are not Israelites who have met Christ yet. They haven't. But God is turning his attention. He's putting his eye on them. He wants to do a work. He says, measure those inside the temple worshiping. So it may be from a literal interpretation that this chapter has primarily to do with the restoration of Israel. Those outside the temple who John was told not to measure represent nations that have gathered themselves against Jerusalem. That's not hard to imagine. We've seen that throughout history. We see that currently. If you know anything about current politics, we will see more of that in the future, undoubtedly, if you study the scriptures at all. And that there'll be this specific period of three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, where the nations will rage against Jerusalem for various reasons. And then in a more literal perspective, during the tribulation period, there arises two witnesses, Real witnesses, real humans prophesying and testifying. And they are directing their message primarily to unrepentant Israel. This part of the chapter in a little pers- literal perspective have to do with unrepentant Israel. We see God's heart for this in Zechariah. Look at these passages from Zechariah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. See that? Others grafted in. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now that prophecy was originally given to Israel concerning the restoration of the captives from Babylon. But it's ultimately fulfilled in the day of the Lord when the Lord returns What we see in Bible prophecy often, especially in the Old Testament, but we see it in the book of Revelation too, is something called telescoping. 
telescoping. If you were to look through a telescope at two mountain peaks that were far away and they're straight out from you, when you look at them through the telescope, they look near to one another. They're sort of flat and they're sort of collapsed. It looks like, oh, those mountains are next to each other. But if you were to move in more closely, you'd see that there's actually quite a distance between them. We see the Bible do that with Bible prophecy, telescoping. We see in one sentence, prophecies given about Jesus concerning his first coming and his second coming. And it's only as we've gotten closer and we look back on hindsight as his second coming that we can say, oh, there's a great distance between the two. And this also happens with the restoration of Israel. There was a restoration after, after the Babylonian captivity. There will be an ultimate one when Jesus Christ returns. That's what Zechariah is talking about. That is perhaps what is being engaged here in chapter 11. So we have these two witnesses sent by God to witness of the gospel and the coming justice of God to unrepentant Israel that they might return and be saved through Jesus the Messiah. Remember in Romans chapter 11, verse 23, it said, and thus all Israel will be saved. All not meaning every single one, all meaning a significant portion of Jews will turn to God in the last days through Christ and be saved. That's wonderful news. These witnesses then that are sent to Israel have supernatural enabling to fulfill their ministry. And so in a literal sort of approach to the chapter, we would just see those things as being literal. And the sort of powers that they have remind us of two people from the Old Testament, Eli and Mo, right? We see them there, Elijah and Moses. For Elijah was the one who prayed and the rain ceased on the land for a period and then prayed again and the rain came again. One of these prophets, one of these witnesses has that same power. And then Moses was given power by the Lord in the book of Exodus, Exodus to turn water into blood. One of these cats has that same ability. So maybe it's Eli and Mo. I don't know. Maybe it's just two witnesses that come in the spirit of Elijah and Moses, as John the Baptist was said by Jesus to come in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. Either way, there's two real witnesses in a literal interpretation. And they have real supernatural enabling. And they need it because there's real dangerous opposition. And God is real serious about getting his message of Jesus Christ to Israel and the nations. So then we would see in verse seven that the Antichrist comes on the scene and kills them. We're not gonna go too in depth into the Antichrist this morning. We'll get much more into him in chapter 13 and elsewhere. We've talked a bit. I've got some messages online posted for you all about the Antichrist. But here we see him arising from the abyss. A literal interpretation would say he's a real man. He's a real political world leader in the last days, but he's clearly empowered by Satan. Right, that's that coming from the abyss language, a demonically fueled world leader in the last days, working against the people of Christ and the plan of Christ. He comes up out of the abyss and he kills these two witnesses. See that in verse seven. No one else was able to do it. They had this power, but the Antichrist seems to have this greater power and he overcomes the two witnesses. Then it says in verses 8 and 10 that their bodies will be seen for three and a half days by the whole world. Well, the internet makes that easy, right? Everyone's going to be posting that on YouTube. 
Nobody could kill these guys, and they were breathing out fire and stopping the rain and turning water to blood and bringing plagues. And then this world leader came on the scene, and he took them out, and now their bodies are laying there. And it says that all the tongues, all the tribes, all the nations will view their bodies laying in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And then all of a sudden, it says that God's breath comes into them, verses 9 through 11, and that they're resurrected, and then they're taken up into heaven. There's a voice from heaven that says, come up here. Your job is done. We're all going to hear that voice someday. Come up here. Your job is done. And the whole world sees it, right? It's on Fox News. It's on CNN, wherever. It's on YouTube. It's on Netflix. The whole world sees it. They're resurrected from the dead. And then they're caught up into heaven. Oh my gosh, nothing like this has ever happened in our modern world before. It happened in the ancient world. Elisha was caught up to heaven with chariots of fire. Second Kings. Enoch was caught up to heaven. The church has said that it will be caught up to heaven. It's not outside of the realm of God, the power of God, the story of God, the plan of God. But it certainly would be a modern marvel to see these men, these witnesses, dead in the street for three and a half days, resurrected and caught up into heaven, that would be a big deal that would rattle people. Well, God wants to make sure they're rattled, so he brings an earthquake. Verse 13. And it causes great destruction in the city. And many perish, but many repent. I mean, doesn't that make sense? These people were preaching the gospel. This antichrist that we thought was awesome comes and takes them out. They lay in the streets. We're sending presents to one another, a perversion of Christmas, a celebration of Jesus Christ at the victory of the antichrist. But all of a sudden, God's breath comes into them. They're resurrected from the dead. They're caught up into the sky. I better get right. Jesus is truly the savior of the world, they say. And it says, many give glory to God, which would be a phraseology for turning to God in that time. That may be exactly what's going on in Revelation chapter 11. Then again, there is a more symbolic perspective. The temple language in a symbolic perspective represents the church. Those who would give themselves to a a uh, hermeneutic of symbolism more so are not as concerned about Israel, but would say this has to do more with the church. God is not that concerned with Israel in the last days. Slight overgeneralization, but that's fairly consistent. So that the temple language represents the church. And those inside who are meant to be measured are the church, right? God is turning his eyes to the church at this moment in the tribulation period because it's going to be a difficult time for the church here with the rise of the Antichrist. Those outside the church that aren't measured are the church's persecutors would be the interpretation. And the two witnesses who come on the scene are symbolic of the witnessing church in the last days. That's okay. That makes sense. They are symbolic of the witnessing church in the last days. Certainly, The church that chooses to remain faithful in the last days is going to be a powerful witness. Because we'll see later on in just two chapters that you either deny Christ and take the mark of the beast or we will take your head from your body. So anybody at this time who's endeavoring to overcome, to stay faithful to Jesus Christ, will be quite a profound witness. 
represented by two witnesses. Why not? Jesus sent his disciples out two by two in Luke chapter 10. That's plausible and that's possible. They're represented by the olive trees and the lampstands. It says in verse four, this is an allusion to a vision that Zechariah had in chapter four of Zechariah during the restoration of Israel where Zerubbabel, the prince, and Joshua, the priest, were being used by God to bring about this restoration, this revival, this calling to repentance, this proclamation of God's word. And isn't it true that the church has both a priestly and a princely function? Are we not called a royal priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? The church is the royal priesthood. We represent the King Messiah, Jesus Christ, and we're to proclaim the truth of him to the world, represented in this chapter by the olive and the lampstands, Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah, the prince and the priest, the church, the royal priesthood, calling the world to repentance. No problem with that. It's there in the book of Zechariah in chapter six, verse four, that we have this famous phrase, not by power, excuse me, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The restoration of Israel, any real work of restoring, renewing, reviving the church has always got to be God's work. We're not gonna achieve God's purposes through our own power or our might, but by the spirit of God. And that would segue us into the verses five and six, these miracles mentioned here in connection with the witnessing church. They're representative of God's protection on her. They may not be literal, they might be figurative. In some way, God is protecting his church against the forces coming against her to quiet her voice. And the authoritative power of God in her, that's not unusual, right? We know that the apostles had authorizing power to perform great miracles from God as they took the gospel into the world. God gives them this power to witness and to pronounce judgment. It may be real things. It may be figurative. Look what Jeremiah says about God's word. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. And this people, the people that were in rebellion to it, like wood, and it will consume them. It says elsewhere in Jeremiah that God's word is a fire and a hammer. It burns and it pounds. So maybe in a literal perspective, these witnesses are fire breathing, like actual fire. Maybe the word of God has such a powerful effect in this time that the word coming forth from them is like fire. It burns the consciences and the hearts of men. It pounds on them like a hammer and brings them to repentance. That is God's purpose in the witnesses. Verse seven then, the beast that arises from the abyss represents anti-Christian world powers which seek to silence the church's witness. That's, that's plausible. That's been happening throughout history. That will certainly happen in the future. That happens right now. There are powers in this world who are beheading people because they are Christians. And what we see in verses 8 and 10 when these two witnesses representing the witnessing church 
are slain is the apparent eradication of the church at this moment. That may be what this symbolizes, that there will come a time in the future where anti-Christian world forces overwhelm the witness of the church and the church lays silent, dormant. There have certainly been instances like that in the world where the church caved to the pressures of the world and laid silent and lost key battles. It would appear here that the church is eradicated, but that's only the appearance. Because what we see in the next verse is that God's church is vindicated in verse 11 as the indestructible witness of God. What we know from church history is that the church has always risen from the ashes of persecution and martyrdom. We need to know that. Because many of our brothers and sisters in the world are experiencing that right now. And part of our shared history is that of the martyrs. And the church has flourished sometimes best when it's experiencing the most opposition, the most persecution. When we study church history, we see that the church is most vibrant and potent when it's working from the margins of society rather than from the center of society. Very well may be what's in view here. So once again, you ask the question, well, Brent, now you've significantly confused us. Which is it, a more literal or a more symbolic approach? Well, certainly God is capable of evil. I'm, excuse me, wow. <laughs> Either. Forgive me, I don't know what that was. Clearly God is capable of Either. And one reason that we would never reject a literal approach is because of our rational constraints. We would never say, well, I'm not going to take a literal approach because I can't believe that these guys would be resurrected. I can't believe that there would be fire. I can't believe that they could stop rain and turn water into blood. If we're going to dismiss that, then we've got to dismiss a whole slew of things in Scripture. For there's nothing, nothing, nothing in Revelation chapter 11 that is new. Nothing that God hasn't already done before. Already resurrected people. Already caught them up into heaven. Already turned water to blood. Already stopped the rain. He's done it all before. So we wouldn't reject it out of disbelief. That would be silly. At that point, we esteem scripture nearly at none, not at all. But symbolism is prevalent in prophecy. And it's prevalent most in the book of Revelation. So both of those takes are plausible. And we take a humble tact. One of the most helpful comments came from Bruce Metzger, a New Testament scholar, and he said this. Perhaps the most that can be said with confidence is that the author views the people of God as bearing faithful testimony. That's there, no matter how you slice it. There's faithful testimony happening. But also suffering pain and persecution and indignity. That's there, no matter how you slice it. Pain, persecution, the indignity of laying bare in the streets for three and a half days. They are delivered, this is raw, not from martyrdom and death, but through martyrdom and death to a glorious resurrection. That's helpful. Those truths are there in that chapter, no matter how we interpret it. 
And those are hard truths. Those truths speak to our lives today. Listen to me. Bible prophecy was never given by God. Leave that up there, please, Diane. Thank you. Was never given by God so that we can just ooh and ah and oogle about the possibilities of the future. It is given by God to form our moral and ethical approach to life today as Christians, as people of God. So that if we see that in the future, God's purpose is that he has witnesses and a witnessing church, then we must ask ourselves, are we a witnessing church? We can't just say, oh, someday there'll be two witnesses. We'll leave it to Mo and Eli. We can't just say that maybe at this point in history or in the future, the church will be a witnessing church. We must ask, are we, are you a witnessing people? It's the weight of the text upon us. We also see here in part of our story that in that, there's suffering and pain and persecution. Jesus didn't lie to us. He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. In this world, you will have trouble. They hated me, Jesus said. They're going to hate you as well. To the degree that we endeavor to be faithful witnesses is the degree that we will experience rejection from the world. If we just fit into the form, if we just conform to the world and let it squeeze us into its mold, then there's nothing about us for them to reject. If we want to look like Jesus and be witnesses for Jesus, then we will find ourselves in conflict with the world. See, this chapter is not so far away. And we may discover the hard truth that in those times, God does not deliver us from martyrdom, but rather through martyrdom. And we will discover the glorious truth that even the places that seem like greatest loss and the worst death are resurrection. In Jesus Christ, death never has the final word. Christ is risen we will be risen with him. So no matter who and what we interpret these witnesses and the connected details to be, three overarching truths are clear. Number one, God is once again in this chapter through another means, he's done it lots of ways in the book of Revelation, endeavoring to call to repentance sinful people that he loves and wants to forgive rather than judge. That too ought to form us. God is doing everything he can to reach sinful people whom he loves that they might be forgiven rather than judged. So should we not also do everything we can to reach sinful people whom God loves that they might be forgiven rather than judged? We might even climb Mount Kilimanjaro for such a thing. Number two. Though evil appears to triumph, it does not. You know, for three and a half days, it looks like evil won. That's how the disciples must have felt after Christ was crucified and laid in a grave. Those were a dark three days. And there are some dark, dark times in life where it feels like we have lost. Evil has won. That's not the case. God's purposes prevail and his people are vindicated. When it seemed darkest, God breathed. 
there was a resurrection. And they were taken up into glory, into God's presence. We need to know in the dark three days of our lives, in the places that feel like ultimate loss, in the places where it's so hard to make sense and it seems that we've been overwhelmed by evil and the effects of evil, that God's purposes prevail and his people are vindicated. That is the truth of the book of Revelation. Let me just say it plainly. In the end, Jesus wins. And in your lives, Jesus wins. Cancer doesn't have the last word. And any other horror of our time, whether it be ISIS, financial collapse, injustice, what happened to you when you were young, who you're dealing with now, these things do not win. For Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome. And so in him, we too overcome. And the chapter finishes with that picture, verse 14. We'll just read it. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders that represent who? The church who sit on their thrones, which represents what? They've overcome by their faith in Christ. Before God, in his presence, fall on their faces and worship God. Saying, we give thanks, O Lord our God, the Almighty, who art, who was, and because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. And the nations were enraged. There's all sorts of opposition. But thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. There will be justice. And the time to give the reward to thy bondservants. There will be reward and vindication. And the prophets and the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's not environmentalism. It's talking about those who reap, who sow the effects of wickedness in the world. Verse 19 And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. When it says that the way to the ark was opened, that's Old Testament Bible language is speaking. And God is with his people. A way has been made for those whom he loves to come into his presence. For the Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence was in the old temple. And God's people were always trying to get to the presence, but they never quite could until Jesus came. And when his flesh was torn on the cross, the veil was torn in the temple in two, symbolizing that the way to God had been made open through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that there was no longer separation between a sinful people and a holy God for we have been forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And so it ends not with the earthquake, not with great loss, not even with the resurrection. It ends with God's presence and our invitation into it. That will be the ultimate. Not as the ultimate invitation for your life today. Maybe you find yourselves in the dark spaces of being overwhelmed by evil in that three-day period where it seems that everything is lost. The invitation for you is that the way into God's presence, his covenantal faithfulness and love has been opened to you through the person of Jesus Christ. Let us therefore enter boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive help in the time of need, it says in Hebrews chapter four. If your life is dark, things seem overwhelming. You've been invited into the presence, into communion with him. And the right posture there is given to us by the 24 elders. Once again, as is always the case in the book of Revelation, they are on their faces. That's the church. We have a great savior, the King Jesus Christ. And before him, we fall on our faces for he is worthy. And communion is here. The way has been opened through his body broken and his blood spilt for us. So today we'll take communion together. You come forward. Maybe you want to come and get on your face like the 24 elders. Come and take communion for the way has been opened. Be reminded that God is for you so who can be against you? That Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Thanks be to God. Amen? Lord, thank you for this encouraging word from your word. We just ask the Holy Spirit you would make the presence of Christ real here. For that's joy to us. That's comforting for us. That's healing for us. The presence of Christ. In thy presence is a fullness of joy. So Holy Spirit, manifest sweet aroma of Jesus among us. And Holy Spirit, pour the love of the Father into our hearts. For we need it. The Father's love heals and restores and renews, strengthens and encourages. And we, we need the Father's love. Pour the love of the Father. God, our Heavenly Father, into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.